This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, we're really excited to bring you some real nitty-gritty science, applied science today. This one's especially good if you are a professional in the field or if you're a student in the field, but also if you're just really interested in what the actual attachment research says some of these coping strategies look like and how to use that to help people heal and grow and be their best full secure self. Carol George has been with us before, episode 162, and I uh, encourage you to check that out as well, but this episode stands on its own. We also have a really special announcement We are forming right now a study group where you can come together with a small group. It's a peer setting for the book, Working with Attachment Trauma, that kind of goes with this episode. Then be sure and let us know, info at therapistuncensored.com. These are peer groups. This one's going to be mostly professionals, I believe. And uh, yeah, we've got a couple of slots, so let us know. She is a preeminent leader in the field of attachment. She co-authored the adult attachment interview with Mary Main. So she's been around quite a while and seen the assessment field change and shift. So it is with great pride and delight that I bring you Dr. Carol George. Hey, welcome back to Therapist Uncensored. We are very excited to have a repeat guest. Dr. Carol George is a leading expert on developmental attachment assessments for children and adults. She's co-edited Disorganized Attachment and Caregiving and has written a really great thorough book on the adult attachment projective picture system. But her new book is called Working with Attachment Trauma, the Clinical Application of the AAP, of the Adult Attachment Projective. So we're going to deep dive into that, and I'm super happy to have you. Uh, So welcome. So thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So maybe that's a good launch, is what led you to want to move this into a more clinical realm and create these stories, these incredible stories. I've read the book. It's so good. What was your motivation for this next book? Well, the motivation was that the attachment theory in general and the AAP in particular was beginning to be used in the clinical realm. And the number of clinicians who were expressing interest in the measurement was beginning to outweigh the number of individuals who were doing basic research. And the AAP, of course, can be used in both. It can be used in research. It can be used in the clinical field. There is a background in using attachment in clinical that has, for the last 20 years, increased, not exponentially, I'd say more slowly, in part by the application of the adult attachment interview, which I helped co-author. There are a few books out there on clinical application of the adult attachment interview, but most of what's available on the AAI, the adult attachment interview, is summaries of clinical 
work, summaries of how one might understand how attachment patterns would feed into clinical work with different populations. But really no case studies. There is a book by David Wallen, is one of my favorites. Using the AAI, I think it's a brilliant book. But there's not a lot out there on the application in the clinic. And the other piece is, with the exception of a few journal papers, there really was nothing using the AAP. And the AAP has so many advantages in terms of assessment. It's quick. It uncovers information that interview methods do not. It appears to be, and there is empirical support for this, more trauma-sensitive in uncovering individuals' trauma than interview methods where people can be careful about what they talk about, for example. And I'm definitely sensitive to individuals who are tender about trauma experiences they've had. But the AP can uncover this and then start a conversation in a non-threatening way. And I've been told by many people that it was time to do a book on clinical application. The idea of clinical application actually occurred about 15 years ago when Mac West was still alive and we just couldn't get it off the ground. We were ready to go almost with the idea with a different publisher and then life took over and we really didn't have at that time when Mac and I were considering this, we didn't really have that amount of clinical application to create a book. So over a period of time and people continuing to ask and me and then my co-editors, Melissa Lehman and Julie Wargo Aikens, became aware that it was time. Lovely for us, we now had, I call a wealth of really talented, not only clinicians, but people who were talented in the AAP and using the AAP in their work in such a variety of different topics and venues. So that now I will propose that the AAP provides use of attachment theory and the measure in the widest range of application settings. Yeah, what were some of those non-clinical examples of folks that have been trained and, and apply it there? Originally, it was non-clinical because it was basically used for research. And a couple of those projects actually came into the book where we have the overlap in developmental psychopathology and the use of attachments. So there was an overlap with the Italians, for example, on the study of obesity in children. There is an overlap with my French-Canadian colleagues with the study of kidney replacement and when what happens when the, when the parent is a donor. And so both of those groups, their chapter is about the father who was the donor, what his attachment representation was, what were his patterns, and then thinking about what it was that was happening with the teenage son who was receiving the kidney. So the basic research overlaps into clinical research for many of us. And my work in the research realm has always been in what we call developmental psychopathology, which is trying to find, getting in my roots of child abuse, trying to find the roots of trauma and child abuse. Right now, my current projects are about shame. It was time to collect those pristine clinicians, so the, who are researchers, and have them give examples of their use of the AAP. And there's such a wide variety in this 
highly recommend it needs to be especially you know for you therapists out there on your library for sure now if we take just for a moment half a step back on our first episode we went into a lot of detail about the actual instrument that we're talking about the adult attachment projective so it might be helpful to you as a listener to at least to know it's there it's episode 162 That was much more about the depth of the instrument and the advantages of it. We did definitely talk about clinical application. So we have all of that covered, but it probably would be helpful to give a real quick thumbnail now of what the instrument is so that as we go forward, people can kind of picture it, picture it, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Picture it because it is a picture system. Um, So the AP is a set of line drawings that are bare bones line drawings. In fact, some of the people when they're taking the AP complain, there's nothing in here for me to to go for. We want to capitalize on the projective technique to get as much of a free response without leading individuals into their stories. Projective technique meaning? Meaning. We show the pictures. There are eight pictures. If one is using the AP with a population like In the intellectual disability population, we can add a couple of other neutral pictures. The first one is a neutral picture for people to get a handle on the task. So by projective, the idea is rather than asking directly about one's thoughts and feelings about attachment or about their own relationships, the idea of a projective test is that something is neutral enough that without knowing it, impose our own implicit story on the neutral image. So it's a way of getting around the defense. There's many different types of projective tests, but they're very different than the self-report tests of attachment that there's a stream of those, of course. So I just really wanna make sure that people are following about like what it is that we're looking for in a projection. Exactly, we're looking for the project itself. And it's also for many populations, and I think in general, a superior way than using an interview. Because an interview is subject to different defenses and self-report tests, but many of the same defenses. So what we're showing over the course of the AP, there's seven pictures that were selected to be drawn based on attachment theory. Many projective tests that are out there, and think about the TAT, for example, were pictures in the history of the development of the TAT. There were pictures that were taken out of magazines, this is how I recall they didn't really have a theoretical foundation. The Rorschach, which I love, doesn't really have a theoretical foundation. There's an interpretive foundation, lots of validity for it. The AP is unique in that it has an attachment theory foundation. So the pictures that we show are pictures of attachment scenes, scenes of children or adults alone, scenes of individuals with a potential attachment partner. So we have alone pictures, dyadic pictures. And the idea is to activate the attachment system as the language that we use, and it does. We know this both from using it and also there's MRI data that shows that. And the task is pretty simple. The task is tell a story about what's going on in this picture, what led up to it, what the characters are thinking or feeling, what happens next, and it creates a little story. Each story is jam-packed with information about the individual who's telling the stories about their history and their feelings and their views of their experiences with their attachment figures. 
So over the course of about 30 minutes or so, we have as much information as one would get through a 60 to 90 minute interview, in fact, more. Which then makes it more affordable. Would you mind saying like what a range is? Sure. For someone who wants to have their own AAP, you want to be sure that you're working with a master judge. I'm the master judge, for example, and people can find me on the internet. If you'd like to work with someone else, I'm happy to make that referral. The cost is not a lot. It's $200 for hours and hours and hours of, it's only 30 minutes for the administration, but we pour over the AEP and give the AEP back. This is for clinicians. If someone wants to have their own AEP, then I would set aside an hour to do the administration just so we have time in case there are technical glitches. And then I schedule a follow-up interview or conversation is, is what it is for that individual talking about the results of their AP. That's $375. That blows my mind. That is a, a session. I mean, that is... It's a session. It, right. If, if the AP is really, really complicated, the charge will be at 400 Oh, boy. Okay. You're going to, I'm sure, be flooded. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, I'm happy to do that. I enjoy meeting people. There is a caveat, though. To have your own AAP done, you must be in a therapy situation. You must be working with a therapist. It could be in a group therapy. It could be individual therapy. The AAP, like all other psychological assessments, is not something we might want to, quote, unquote, play with. I'm respectful that people are interested, but what is revealed can be potentially difficult. And I, I then offer the clinician that you are working with and one is working with an hour of gratis consultation to go over the AEP. Many people are not familiar enough with the instrument or are not familiar with attachment theory and don't know how to actually use it. They want to use it in their practice. So that hour that I spend with a client's therapist is an hour well spent, and the client is kind of covering the cost on that as well. But it is a, a valuable experience. One of the things I want to say to get to my next question here is that part of what's so powerful about it is that it gets at things that we're not already aware of. And so those early maps, and again, our audience is familiar to a large degree on attachment and the biological basis, you know, and the internal working models and things like that. So What's so powerful about this instrument is it gets to those things that we can't see. And one of the most common questions that we get when we're teaching about kind of contemporary attachment is, okay, I have some symptoms, I sort of fall, I sort of look like I could be insecure, but my family was good, like everything was fine. So I thought that would be a good launching point for you to begin to talk about some of the really important concepts that are really relevant in this book. And it's new concepts to many of us, even those of us who's been working with attachment for a long time. You know, lots of people do their reading now on the internet. <laughs> you know, about it. The clients know about attachment from the TikTok, internet. you know. <laughs> oh, what, what, however it comes across, the, the problem with something you and I were talking about earlier is it's, it's one thing to read about something as another to have it come to life. So the AAP can provide a context for ideas and feelings that a client might already be aware of, but the AAP can also uncover contexts and feelings that a client is not consciously aware of 
or has not wanted to be consciously aware of. Everything's fine. And after the AAP unveils that, we have to kind of have a conversation about how it's natural to want this to be fine, but it's not. So let's give this a name now, and let's dig a little bit, and let's explore what isn't fine. And I think what we all are coming to understand that when you put these two pieces together. Which two pieces? The pieces that you already know with the pieces that are uncovered that you may not know or may not have named yet. You put those two pieces together and we're never trying to change anybody. We're trying to capitalize on the defensive strikes that are embedded in these two pieces to create integration, we put them together to create integration and to help people move towards a path to security. So for example, one of the chapters in the book that was written by Stephen Finn. Many listeners will remember Steve Finn. He's been on our show a couple of times. Absolutely, and you can't write a book without Steve. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not, not using the APs, great <laughs> man. There's a section of the book, the third section of the book is an adult psychotherapy and assessment, and he wrote a chapter which was related to what I was talking about earlier, where it demonstrates how a client who started off as unresolved through the work that she did with Steve. One of the nice things about the AEP is you can give it repeatedly. So even when you know the trick to it, it's, <laughs> it still works. It still works. And I think one wants to be careful not to give your client too many tricks. But what Steve was able to demonstrate was time one, time two, times three changes in the client's responses to the stories. And this client moved from being unresolved to secure over the course of quite a long time in therapy. She stuck with Steve. But that path is not an easy path. It's a difficult path to achieve. Unresolved to secure, think about it. Wow. Totally dysregulated to become integrated and able to see a whole self rather than a fragmented self. And what I love about Steve's chapter is not only he was able to demonstrate this with the AP, but as with every other chapter in the book, one of the tasks that we gave each author that Steve does beautifully is to take the reader through the process of how the AP was used in therapy. So general questions in the book that we've asked our clinical authors to address, you know, what is the context? Why did you use the AAP? How did you use the AAP? And then the PSU resistance are really, really difficult. They're two difficult questions. How do you talk to your client about attachment results? And in fact, we just did a symposium at SPA last March of, again, very talented clinicians. How do you talk to your client about the results of their assessment? And for those of you who are listening, who are working in clinics or working with clients who have other mental health professionals as part of a team, for example, so I'm thinking about a chapter by Deanna Galichin and her crew in England who work with intellectually disabled adults. So whether those adults are in treatment, inpatient treatment, or whether they're in sort of day treatment, they call them in England carers. We would call them caregivers. They're going to be carers who are working with the individuals who are 
receiving the AAP? And how do you talk to carers, to other caregivers, to other mental health professionals who may not be familiar with attachment theory? Or this might be in another setting, a preschool teacher, which is and what I encounter in infant mental health. How do you talk to these individuals about the findings of the assessment, trying to help them benefit from the assessment while they're working with their clients and not step on their professional toes and sheep? And that is such a challenging situation because the goal is never to step on the toes of another professional but rather to open the door to another idea about how the client could be seen and helped by professionals who are not trained from that perspective. And I must say that, like for example, Deanna and her colleagues' chapter have two clients who are intellectually disabled, and they have done an outstanding job writing about the initial reception of carers to the adult attachment projector results and how they were able to bring them around. And they also were able then to report from the new perspective that the carers had based on the EEP strengths and progress that these clients had made. So every chapter in this book, every clinical chapter was given that charge and that's wonderful is like, okay, how does this really look in real life? What I'd really like to also do is dig in to your part of the book and really talk about, you know, I don't love necessarily how this is called, but it's, it's older language, right? Incomplete pathological mourning. And if you don't mind, I'd really love to deep dive into that because I think this is going to really bring it home and make it come alive in a way that is relatively new for us to think about. So. Mm-hmm. And you're right. John Bowlby used the term pathological mourning, and out of respect for John Bowlby, I don't like him to throw the baby out with bathwater yet. There are other people who don't care for that term as well. I'll explain what it is in a minute. The book has two unique features. One is the clinical case studies, all of which turned out to be have cases in where I'm going to go next, which is the other feature, which is this notion of pathological mourning. John Bowlby was interested in loss, of course, but then through my work with Judith Solomon and through Mac and the AAP and working with children, we've come to understand that there are more experiences in life that need to be more and that grieving has to take place for more than loss through death. So can you give an example? Because again, I'm thinking about this question of, but nothing happened. And then you find out that mom and dad used to have dragged down fights. So parental conflict, or sometimes it's partner violence with the parent that the child was not involved in it, not necessarily abuse of the child. Sometimes one of the parents had a, a mental health problem that created, without being able to preempt or anticipate, frightening situations for children. They, maybe dissociation was involved. Anything that is considered a potential break in the attachment caregiving relationship is a type of loss. And so through my work with Judith Solomon, we have coined the term failed protection and attachment trauma. If we go back into the biology of attachment, it's all about the biology input is protection. It's not about love. It's about protection, which then when security happens, turns into love the way we know it. So pathological mourning in the book is framed 
using John Bowlby's term because he was interested to know responses to loss through death in parents and in adults who had losses in their own childhood that were related to symptoms, pathology. That's why I call it pathological mourning. So what the book is trying to undo and does quite successfully, actually, we have succeeded in that task, is to broaden the topic of pathological mourning from loss to attachment trauma as defined by failed protection. And so the chapters talk about different kinds of failed protection. And what has happened through the, my work in this area is that, again, going back to Bowlby, Bowlby talked about three different patterns of responses. And only one pattern actually took hold in the field of attachment. And that was because of how the adult attachment interview was used. That pattern was unresolved. And again, Steve Finn's chapter that I, to which I just referred talked about unresolved to secure. But Bowlby uncovered two other ways in which mourning or the grieving process was related to psychological symptomology. And we have included those two other ways in the book. One is called failed mourning or failure to mourn. And it is when your client has not embarked on the mourning process. Typical signs of that is to defend against the trauma, if it was a loss, taking all the pictures away, getting all the clothing out of the house very, very quickly. But from a defensive posture perspective, which Bowlby couldn't write about, that's a product of my work, the person tries to distance themselves and armor themselves from the attachment trauma and cool it down, neutralize, no, it didn't happen, no, I'm fine, no, we're not talking about that. And that's called failed warning. So the trauma is all held inside. And you don't know that you have it. Sort of, yeah. You're just so descended that you really don't understand. Right. You're not, you don't know it and are actively repressing it. You really have bought into, well, kids shouldn't cry. Well, he should have hit me because I was being, I lied. Or, you know. You know, I, I shouldn't be feeling this way because my parents were great. Right. They always made the chocolate chip cookies from my birthday party. We always went on the field trips. They supported my education. They paid for my college. What's wrong with that? Why do I feel like this? But every once in a while, when a stressor occurs in that person's life who is in failed mourning, they will feel tremendous pain. Often shame is involved, and then they have to repress it. Then they have to shut it down. Well, failed mourning, and there's a wonderful chapter by Melissa Lehman in the book about a client she'd been seeing for a long, long time. Failed mourning is just as much of a problem as unresolved mourning. And we see in our work that failed mourning, the work that I have been doing in the last few years with parents, parents who are in failed mourning can have children who are disorganized, who will then have this whole palette of potential risk problems. So failed warning is a risk factor, not only for the individual's own symptoms, but also for parenting and new relationships. What is the relationship between failed warning and dismissing states of mind or dismissing attachment? It's a form of dismissing attachment. It's a traumatized, armored off form of dismissing attachment that 
can only be right now evaluated using the AEP because the stories in the AEP are hypothetical. So the trauma shows up, but it's not about me. It's about that kiddo in the corner. It's about that girl on the bench, but it's not about me. Yeah, and so to be clear, you can tell us a free story about the girl on the bench, and you're not aware that you're projecting, certainly especially your implicit, kind of the, the stuff that is going to be stored very, very low limbic onto the girl on the bench. So unintentionally, you are taught, you know, you're identifying with that girl. And so then we're getting the story in this very safe way where that you can plan the exposure or the being able to feed that back to the client in a way that is digestible. Exactly. I'll tell you about how we feed it back in a minute. So there were two forms that were lost from Bowlby's work. The other form is called preoccupied with personal suffering. Preoccupied with personal suffering is a form of chronic mourning. Unresolved loss mourning is a form of chronic mourning. So failure to mourn is hasn't happened, not going to happen. <laughs> I don't want to go there. The two forms of chronic mourning, unresolved and preoccupied with personal suffering, is I'm immersed with this all the time. But what is different about chronic mourning than the unresolved is the unresolved individual can become flooded by their trauma. But there's a lot of places in their lives where many individuals who are unresolved can function just fine. The preoccupied with personal sufferer is what Mackinac call living in the war zone. It's more like a PTSD reaction. The world is dangerous. I need to be hypervigilant. I need to notice if the lights are flickering. I need, need to know where that sound comes from. And that is a different pattern of thinking about the world than the unresolved flooded person who can become unglued but then put back together again. This chronic mourning person is living, kind of living in terror. And what's interesting about that and really hard is that this is a form of the preoccupied attachment pattern. And the defensive processes of, that define the preoccupied attachment pattern, the goal of those defensive processes is to disconnect trauma and knowing about it. And it's like covering up a smokescreen. So again, the person may not know why they feel the way they do. Why are they so frightened? The failed mourner is not frightened. The preoccupied sufferer is frightened. Why am I so frightened? And sometimes they have access to their trauma as if it was like a dream. This is not really happened, did it? So Caroline Lee and I actually have written a chapter in the book about a sexual abuse case, preoccupied with her suffering, often associated with sexual abuse because of the secretiveness around sexual abuse in general. So we have these three forms of pathological mourning in the book, and it's the only book that actually addresses those. And clinically, it's really helpful, for sure. Well, clinically, it's very important. And what you can do with your client, because we all know that our clients, especially the failed mourners, they don't want to hear this, but you can step your clinical work into the trauma that you were seeing. Whereas if it comes out in an interview, it's right there in front of you. Failed mourning being a subtype of dismissing attachment. You can have a dismissing coping strategy, but not have failed mourning. But if you have failed mourning, it's laced with trauma, and you've used a primary defense of disconnection 
entirely. Deactivation, right. Cool it down, get rid of it. This would be the example of, but nothing happened. My parents are good. Exactly. Right. Okay. And then the preoccupation with personal suffering, if I'm understanding that right, then the disconnection, it's not lateral. Like it's not, no, it didn't, nothing happened. There's something there, but it's a cognitive disconnection so that it's more fragmented or it's not disorganized. There's a difference there. Maybe if you could say more about that, but just to make sure I understand it's a complete deactivation with failed mourning. It's a cognitive disconnection with preoccupied with personal suffering. Is that right? And I think the word smokescreen is the image of a smokescreen that you know that there's something behind that in that smoke, but you can't see it. You can't name it. You're going to get hints of it. You're going to get hints of discomfort in certain situations. It's almost like implicit memory in babies. So how is that different than unresolved? Well, the unresolved individual knows what happened. And they can become flooded with those events. So examples of that, to become flooded, is to, let's say someone has died. That's the clearest picture of unresolved. In a moment or moments in a time during your day, it's almost like you went back into the past. You're there. You can see it. There might be smells or visual images around that loss. And you literally become flooded by the past. And some individuals stay in that state chronically. I mean, they're constantly flooded. Others can recover, come back to the present, and keep going forward with their life. But the flooding is a past intruding on the present. Whereas the chronic mourning associated with preoccupied with personal suffering, you're kind of not sure what was past and what is what was present and what happened to the past. So you're not it's not being intruded upon you the way it is when you're unresolved. It's also the case with unresolved individuals, not always, but often they are wondering how they were responsible for the trauma that occurred. So the trauma is clear. How was I responsible for the loss? Could I have done something more about the loss? Was I responsible for my abuse? What a piece of crud I am. Well, all of these will involve shame of different forms, but this notion of responsibility combined with, can I, can I go back to the past? So there's this, in the unresolved, really a haunting. Oh, that's a great word. Versus the smoke screen for our chronic preoccupied sufferer versus our knight's armor <laughs> with your shield ready to go and your spear if anybody pokes you for the failed warning. So how do these relate to one another? Can you have these different experiences within the same person? Does this move around at all? It doesn't really move around on its own, but it will move around in therapy. And that's what Steve's chapter shows. And it can move around based on other experiences that are happening in your life. So there can be what we call the triggers. But I think what we need to be prepared for is when the failed mourner becomes unlocked, we have found empirically just what Bowlby predicted. They will become unresolved. And now their past is right in front of them. Because mm -hmm. there's no muscle memory of how, what to do with these big feelings. No. No, and the feelings are there. They can't ignore them anymore. They can't avoid them. They're there. The preoccupied with personal sufferer also needs to move 
towards becoming unresolved because the bad news for the unresolved is the flooding and it's painful and nobody wants to experience that, which is why the other two forms are sort of like defenses against the pain. But the unresolved individual has to begin to discuss, see, and name very gently, very slowly, the trauma. You just don't go from these other two forms of mourning right to security. You can't. You need to be involved with the past. And that's what's characteristic of the unresolved. The past is right in front of you. Mm-hmm. It comes flooding back. And then you're using unresolved and then you know, these terms change, but disorganized. So can you say a little bit about like the category disorganized versus unresolved? I don't like the word disorganized, first and foremost. It was developed by Mary Main and Judith Solomon to try to capture babies' responses in the separation reunion situation that we call a strain situation. And they didn't make sense. Whenever I talk about disorganization, I say, it didn't make sense. How did they discover it? It didn't make sense. A baby that was supposed to be doing this and acting like a secure or avoidant ambivalent resistant was somehow something else was happening and disrupting. So the common day usage term of the word disorganized fits the bill. But that isn't what happens as children grow older. Most children, as they grow older, who have had that disorganized grouping, when they're infants and toddlers become what we call controlling. They have to control the world around them. So they no longer look disorganized. They look hyper-controlling, hyper-organized. Boy, if anything's out of place, I'm going to flip out. So Judith and I have been pushing for over 10 years, maybe 15 years, to use the word dysregulated instead. Because what the data shows is that the physiology and the representation of the mind are dysregulated. The regulatory processes are not happening. So therefore, the disorganized child is a kind of dysregulated child. When we move to the AAP, the unresolved individual is dysregulated. But the chronic sufferer, the preoccupied chronic sufferer, is regulated around trauma. That's a form of dysregulation. The whole world is dangerous. The Dismissing filled mourning individual is regulated. They tend not to fall apart, so their deactivation defenses are regulating them. But I prefer the word dysregulation for the two chronic groups because they're different flavors of dysregulation. I know in the literature, and even my colleagues still write, unresolved attachment, disorganized attachment, it's not that easy. And I think it's better to find a concept that is supported. Judith Solomon and I have written a chapter in our 211 book, Disorganized Attachment, about dysregulation at three levels. So you've got emotional, you have neurophysiological, and then you have behavioral. That's dysregulation. And I think that's a real improvement over the term disorganization, which just describes babies in the strain situation. Right. Okay. So a disorganized baby, quote, would grow up without treatment, wouldn't be disorganized, but would be dysregulated and dysregulated in one of these ways. Usually those babies, if you look at the data, the data are, studies are contradictory, but across studies, most of those babies 
who were dysregulated, disorganized as infants without some kind of intervention are unresolved. But not all of them, because the only research that we have on that is about trauma and loss. <laughs> it's not about parents with mental illness. It's not about partner violence. And in fact, many of the individuals who have experienced domestic violence and their parents who also then unfortunately find themselves in relationships that are also aggressive, they end up in the preoccupied sufferers. And they may have been disorganized as babies. So, so when we look across time, the data is messy. I think what we might want to say is if your client has had dysregulating trauma in their past, we don't want to assume they were disorganized as a baby but we are able to say where the failures in protection occurred and we can see how they're responding to them. Are they regulating? Are they a form of dysregulated regulation, the preoccupied sufferer, or are they shutting it down like the failed morning? So all three of those are sort of forms of dysregulation in their own way, even though they don't show up behaviorally. So one of the things that can get confusing is like we're talking a lot about trauma and fortunately really fanning that out. Your book is about like, oh, there's all of these kind of developmental trauma pieces, but it's not the same thing. Like, in other words, preoccupation with personal suffering isn't the same thing as PTSD, right? I can't say that it's the same as PTSD. It does show up in individuals who have reported experiences that we would equate with risk for PTSD. But so does the unresolved. One of the things that is fascinating about the, the preoccupied sufferer is its association with sexual abuse rather than being unresolved, for example, for sexual abuse. And part of that is that the smokescreen around sexual abuse is often already created in childhood because of the secretive. Oh, I see. So it's like, that's where we get into the cognitive disconnection. You know, I can't know this is happening and wake up the next morning and have breakfast with you. The mental confusion, the, the smoke screen happens. And that's, that is an adaptive strategy for the child. Exactly. And you, if you put two and two together, you'll become a puddle on the floor. You'll become flooded and unresolved. The other two forms, not unresolved, but the other two forms have a defensive process that fosters a certain amount of regulation, but they are deeply dysregulated inside. That's why you can't just go with behavior. In our sample, the mothers who were preoccupied with personal suffering had children who were ambivalent resistant. Those are organized patterns. You know, they're messy, but they were able to smokescreen their trauma out enough to parent a child, not be disorganized, dysregulated. So then preoccupation with personal suffering, I was thinking of it as sort of a subcategory of the preoccupation. It is. Okay, not, not dysregulated. No, because the dysregulation is inside though. So the dysregulation, it, when you start looking at layers the way Judith and I tried to do in 2011 and get away from behavior, and you start looking at emotional disruption and neurophysiological disruption, the dysregulation is there, but you're not going to see it at the level of behavior. It does show up, but you know, 
everybody can crack. I mean, if there's the right stimulus or the right trigger, the preoccupied sufferer can become totally dysregulated, the failed morning person. But the question then becomes, how do they put themselves back together? If we can, I would also like to move into some of your the clinical strategies based on these different pieces of information about how that they coped with their trauma. Why don't we just actually go there as far as applying this? So you find out or you suspect or you have had an AAP and you know you have failed morning. What would you want clinicians to be thinking about? And then also if, you know, if you're speaking to the client themselves. And those are two different things, obviously, but... Right. Not as different for the failed warnings because the failed warnings are so protected. <laughs> it's like, okay, I know. <laughs> the thing about failed warning clinically is the willingness to explore and remember those situations that were not And with the failed warner, one major big problem is anger. Anger was not okay in that dismissing childhood, that avoidant childhood. And what I encourage clinicians, and I I say this in my my letters to clients as well, is that anger is part of our biology. And this again, I go back to Bowlby, who has a beautiful chapter on the purpose of anger in the second volume separation. Anger is supposed to build relationships. Anger that is expressed clearly that is out there and the person who's receiving in the relationship has to be able to say, yeah, okay, I can see you're angry and receive it and hold it. And when that happens, the relationship literally works through and integrates the anger. And then it doesn't just sit on your shoulder like the elephant in the room, so to speak. And so one of the problems with failed mourning individuals is that Anger is either absent in their AAPs, or if there is, it's just a little, little, little tidbit, is to come to understand that anger is natural and that they should be angry, that they didn't get their attachment needs met. And we're not encouraging clients to go home, open the door, yell at their parents about, you know, I'm angry at you because of all of this, that. But it's it's in the privacy of individual therapy or if you're in group therapy, in the privacy of that context, you can say, you know what? Yeah, I'm angry. I Because that's one of the feelings that is really buried. Anger is dangerous. Anger, our society thinks that anger breaks relationships apart, and it doesn't. Our biology says anger needs to be expressed and builds relationships. So working with clients and field warning about how the fact that they have every right to be angry that their attachment needs were not met. And then you can use, people use individual AAP stories. Often the bed story is a really nice one. For our listeners, you can see these pictures online. Unfortunately, they're copyrighted, but they're there. And then we also have them in our books. But the bed story is a scene of what most people interpret as a mother and a child on opposite end of the bed, the little boys in bed at the pillow end. Mom is in some kind of ambiguous gesture at the other end. And that bed story for many, regardless of whether they're insecure, regulated, or in one of the pathological morning groups, is like seeing a strange situation when they were a baby. That's how it reads. And for the insecure individuals and those in pathological morning, for most of the time, 
the mother doesn't respond to the child in a sensitive way. Either it takes too long, or the mother gives a lesson about what was done wrong before she actually gives the child the hug that they want. Sometimes the parent doesn't respond at all and leaves the child to their own devices to go to sleep on their own. Those are stories where you can begin to talk, for example, with your client about, you know, what your biology wanted there was a nice response. And yeah, if you did something wrong, get the hug first and then have the lecture. And your biology may be angry about that. What do you think? You know, and then kind of lead people through using the actual stories that they tell to talk about the emotions that are there and the emotions that aren't there, in this case, anger for the failed morning person. The preoccupied sufferer being part of the preoccupied domain there often has elements of anger or frustration, which is toned downward for anger. Which is a total what? A toned downward for anger. (laughs) A toned down. Um, But they don't know why. So why is your caregiver in the bad scene frustrated? What is it you were asking for? What do you think your, your caregiver felt there? What were you, do you think they thought you were asking too much? Does your biology think that you're asking too much? What did you need? Some people use a technique that, so emotions. You can work with emotions that are there, that are not there, that should be there. That's a really powerful way to work clinically. Some of my colleagues actually use a technique where they will ask the adult client, if you were in the room with that child, what would you say to that child now? And that's a a lovely way to start to integrate past and present, to start to help the adult describe or name what they really want. And there's some good research on that. Like I think about David Elliott's work with the ideal parent protocol. And yeah, really, that's very powerful. Yeah. And I, I was listening to a, a trauma broadcast recently. I think it was Vanderkolk who was talking about the importance of creating an imaginary situation where you get what you want. Not only David Elliott's work by Vanderkolk, who you know, is the guru of trauma for many, and him talking about the importance of imagination. Because internal working models, uh, mental representations, which is what the AEP is assessing, will tell you what the story is right now. And of course, for those who are more dynamically oriented, not behaviorally oriented, but who are more dynamically and emotionally oriented, emotion-focused therapy, for example, trying to change the narrative. And it's fascinating to me how powerful changing the narrative, changing words, can affect the limbic system. Because the words are not in the limbic system. <laughs> you know, the words are in the prefrontal cortex. But the powerful integration of those two places, and of course, brainstem for trauma, is amazing. So those are some of the ways that individuals have clinically use the AAP stories. And in others, just asking the question about a story, it's what came up for you? Was there a memory there? People who, who say they can't remember anything. And often those are the failed mornings because the dismissing is um, about not remembering. Say, well, yeah, I can remember. They start to remember. And then talking through the memory 
I'm remembering pieces. What often is, if there is a memory, what's often missing is the emotion and the memory for dismissing clients and trying to bring out, but again, not in a threatening way because they'll want to shut that down really, really quickly. Yeah, it's all about titration. Exactly. And for field warning and dismissing clients, one's first goal is to keep them in therapy. They're very likely to flee. Yeah. This is this is too much. I need to be out here. I can't. And I, I hear um, about, like in, in a couple's therapy, for example, an individual who is more dismissing and a, another individual who I think was just determined was secure. In the couple's therapy, the client who was failed warning was asked to say something about his strengths. He didn't know. He couldn't say anything. So then partner was asked, and partner could rattle off a bunch of strengths. The client, the dismissing client's reaction was to leave the room and shut the door. <laughs> Didn't want to hear even positive things. Well, it's threatening. They're very fragile, and they put up this armor, and yet inside they're very, you know, I was, remember hearing that recently, actually thinking, oh my gosh, even something positive was too much for this individual. But the AP can be used to bring out memories to talk about those. The AP can be used by having you talk to as an adult to the, the child or the person in your, your story. You can use the AAP. I know Steve Finn has done this in the past. The girl is sitting on the bench and she's sobbing and the only way that she can regulate in the story is to put her feet down. Because okay? and the, for those of you when you look at the picture you notice that her legs are up on the bench. Steve might ask, is there anything else she can do? What are her alternatives? And to start having one's client narrate not a different story, an additional ending to the story. A more secure ending, right? Uh, Or just let's get something that is a little bit more agency than putting your feet down, which can get you what you need in the moment, but won't serve you very well in the long run. And then hearing about clients who do that, and then they go off and they have agency in their real life. I think one of the things I appreciate about the AAP is that my colleagues who are clinicians have been so able to be so creative in how they use the measure. There's no one way that you can use it. it once you have it, it's there for you to use in many different ways with your clients. Yeah, I, I was saying earlier that I think of it as a dynamic document because sometimes we'll return to it, even years later, for some of my long-term clients, and understand things differently. You know, one just example that I've seen with the bed story was that the person, there was some limit with the child instead of the hug. And then they felt a lot of shame about that, like exposed as a parent. But then who she was projecting into the mother was herself. In other words, meaning this is what happened to her. It wasn't about her parenting, it's about this was her parent, if that makes sense. And that really opened things up. It was like, oh, and it was stuff that there wasn't uh, words around and there wasn't a lot of narration, but there was something about that click of her impulse to do this instead of being ashamed by it. It was like, no, that's what happened to you. Yeah, because she knows, everybody knows. We have scripts out there and and these scripts are culturally based, and that's another thing that's positive about the AAP. It's cross-culturally applicable. The script in Western culture is your child reaches for a hug and you hug them right back. And, and if you see that that's not what you're doing in retrospect or you see it in the story, you're going to say, I'm deficient. 
So by you saying to your client, no, that's what's happened to you, and that's automatically how, in in a very real way, like Skinner behaviorism, that's what you learn to do. But But what you don't know is why. You don't know why your parent was like that. And we now know in attachment that a parent who gives the lesson or fails to respond, there's so much pain and discomfort in there that they can't react. But a child doesn't know that. You know, and then you become a parent yourself, you don't know why. And often your parent is gone. You know, your parent's not accessible anymore. You know, and even your parents die. My both of my parents are gone. Not necessarily glued to our conversation, but there are all these questions I want to ask and I can't ask, right? You know, why did this happen? Why did that happen? And also they might not know. Like they just like what we're talking about, so much of this stuff that's not narrated in conscious, accessible language. Exactly. But when you use a simple little story with your client and they see what's happening, or maybe you have to help them see, well, what else could have happened? Or how does the child feel now? You know, you can just, so many ways, and I know that you've been using it creative as well. You're looking for that light bulb. And it doesn't take a whole transcripts for the light bulbs. You can get it with one or two stories. That's right. There's suddenly something is seen. Something comes on. It really does change. And then you get into more of that bottom-up processing that is what is transformative. Yeah, yeah. And usually you can tell if you've been working with a client long enough, and sometimes I can tell, and I know nothing about the clients, what response is their important attachment stories. And you can also tell how your client is going to relate to you. You have an insecure client who has an adult figure in the ambulance story where there's an emergency. Well, our clients come to us in an emergency situation, or if it's not an emergency, they stay away. Yeah, you have to have blood pouring in order to need anything. (laughs) And sometimes, you know, it might be a grandma, and sometimes it's just a, a kind lady. Sometimes it's a nurse or a doctor who provides comfort. That's your cue as a clinician. That's why they're there. You know, they may have experienced that in their life, sure, but they're also in this medical situation, so to speak, where that individual was successful. And I think that is a little sign there for the clinician. Okay, we can do this. Even though I have had other resistances. <laughs> you can go to the ambulance story and say, you know what you said there? Yeah, being able to pull out some of the signs of security. How many secure AAPs do you see proportionally? Well, in the clinic, very rare. People who are secure typically only return to therapy if they have been insecure in the past and they need help now. So it's very they come in for like their booster shot and their AAP might show up. There is a client in the first book, the 2012 book. Of course, we didn't have an AAP on her earlier in her life, but she felt that she had, was responsible for her mother's death. She was driving the car and a, another driver hit the passenger side of the car. Mom sent her away, wouldn't talk to her when the ambulance came and then mom died later and she just... That was horrendous for her. She became depressed. She was diagnosed with dysthymia. But her AP is secure because she got treatment over the period of time. And she did say when we spoke with her, yeah, I go in for my booster shot when I'm feeling depressed. 
So in answer to your question, it would be unusual, actually, I think, to find a secure individual in your practice because secure individuals can reach out to their partners or other people, and they also can use those internal resources that Mac and I call the internalized secure base to help them, unless there's a, you know, a really big trigger. And I don't remember what the trigger was that this lady talked about. Well, has it been normed, though, on kind of the general population? Do the stats match? We normed it on the AI. And the stats match the meta-analyses of the AI in these big community samples. It hasn't been normed in a clinical sample because it's going, the AAP is going to uncover trauma that even the client or the therapists aren't even aware of if it's there. It's rare for not the trauma not to be uncovered. Every once in a while, it will not be uncovered in a dismissing person, that they are so covered. So in terms of statistics, there haven't been any empirical studies of certain, I know there are a lot of empirical studies, the AI, borderline patients, depressed patients. Uh, Mary Dozier has written multiple chapters in the Handbook of Attachment. We haven't done that with the AEP because... One, the important reason is you don't have the other two morning groups. You only have unresolved. You don't have the other two trauma groups. So it may show up the same for some diagnostic groups like borderline, but maybe not. You know, Mac and I published a study on depression, of which this lady was a, a member of that study. And at the time, people were talking about how depression, clinical depression was associated with the unresolved category. We didn't find that. We found it associated with the preoccupied category. And we didn't have a way that that time, it was like 25 years ago, 20 years ago, we didn't have a way at that time to diagnose or, or judge the pattern for preoccupied sufferers. But I have those cases. I have them in my files somewhere. <laughs> and then they are preoccupied sufferers. They weren't used. So I appreciate the question on norms. We have to have those empirical studies. It has been follow the same patterns as the AAI, which has been examined in different populations. But there's also differences that are going to upset the pure empiricists because the data is messy. You don't have these other groups. One pushback that I've seen is how that in that original strain situation, like things have been built on top of that, right? That like, and re reference back to that. And with the AAP being a theory-based assessment, is there a danger of kind of looping back to the, I wouldn't even know the right language, but kind of unconsciously referencing ourselves in a sense, you know what I mean, where that it creates a loop, a theoretical loop, that if there are problems in the beginning, this house that gets built on top of it then would potentially be vulnerable? Well, it, it's not something that requires pushback. Here's what the data says. If you just look at babies to older ages, it's messy. There are not one-to-one -one correspondences between what the baby was and what the adult was, and all of these are AAI studies. What the data does show is that babies who had difficulties early on tend to be raised in environments that continue to have difficulties. And if that happens, then you're going to find strong matches between what 
the data showed as a baby and the data shows as an adult. And if a baby was raised without difficulties and bumps or trauma or even insecurities and was secure, for example, as a baby, but gets them later on, they're going to be insecure as adults. So the piece that I love about that data is that life matters. And it matters in multi-directions. It says that if you are secure, you might have a better resilience to life's difficulties, but that doesn't mean you're not going to show up in a therapist's office unresolved or failed warning if you were one of those sturdy, secure, for the people not attachment, B1 or B2 babies. It doesn't mean that if you were disorganized that you're definitely going to be an unresolved, dysregulated adult. That life matters along the way. And security can be undone too and, and patched back together. There is a study that didn't have attachment on everybody, but I still like the study. This was done by the Cowans many years ago, Phil and Carolyn Cowan and their family systems therapists. And they showed that for mothers who were having difficulties parenting their child and who had had difficulties in their past, the father is a lovely family systems finding. If a father was secure on the AI, he could buffer his partner from her insecurities and the children didn't have problems. That nice? Oh my gosh, that's incredible. It was wonderful. We can use the AAP also in, in family relationships. If we assess mom, if we assess dad, and maybe our child is too young to do uh, representational assessment, we don't have strange situations available to us, which we often, most often don't. Or in our kiddo is not old enough to do an AAP, like not a teenager, for example. You can assess mom and dad and find out what are they bringing to their relationship to each other? What are they bringing to their potential relationship in parenting the child? What are they bringing to the family therapy? I mean, the AP can give you all those different arrows in all those different directions. And I think the Cowan study really speaks to that as well, that if you have a regulated parent, in this case it was a secure parent, if you have a solid regulated parent, that can really help the other parent. And what has to happen in therapy then is we need to know what our vulnerabilities are, which the AAP can show, but we also have to know how we can help the other parent. It is so lovely and it's so hopeful. And that's part of our message always is, you know, sometimes when you're reading about the neurobiology of trauma and insecure attachment, it's really scary because these are become embedded circuits. But it's also true that we are wired to connect and to be in close relationships and that these relationships rewire us. And want to reference again some of these clinical cases in your book that kind of show the transformation, the narrative transformation, the representational transformation from insecure to secure for clients. And that's not just the therapist's idea. It is documented. Documented by the assessment. And, and for some of them, you know, you might be interested to know, or like failed warning case that um, Melissa talks about, he was, boy, failed warning, very armored. He had to become dysregulated, you know. And so we address all of that in the chapters of the book, all the different pathways. 
And of course, as I said earlier, how you might work with other professionals that are part of your team or working with your client. So speaking of that, you are available for consultation. And if you're a therapist and you've got some clients that you think could benefit from this, you have access to, it's not just Carol George, right? You have a center. Is that right? Or is it? Oh, I wish we had a center. We're spread all over the country, but we, ha- we, we have a consortium. <laughs> we work in a consortium. So what you do if you're interested is contact me first. The best email to use is called aapinfo, aapinfo at comcast.net. And that will go to my own private email. And you can also find me that way on the internet at Adult Attachment Projected online. The way that works is you don't have to know a lot about attachment theory, but you are wanting to bring attachment into your work with one or more clients. And contact me and, and I will, if I'm the person that we decide will do this, I can work with your client and then through you, you have to get a consent form that I can work with your client. Your client has to sign off for it. And then I give the AP, I do a feedback session with your client. And then I do a feedback session with you and I give you the AP and a letter that I write your client that you get a copy of to help it get you started. And then of course, I'm always available to continue that consultation. And I'm not the only person in the world who can do this. I'm the only one doing this right now. This is something that has new, merged new out of our first podcast that Sue just talked about. And there are other master judges who are people who are pristine in working with the AAP. Uh, One of them would be Melissa Lehman, for example, who codes AAPs for a lot of people in the therapeutic assessment domain. And I do too, actually. So, you know, reach out, and the more people were to reach out, the more we can establish a net through the consortium of helping individuals use the AAP. We also have trainings, and we find that if people will attend a training, that those, even those conversations that we have after I might do a consultation, are more meaningful because they know more about the basics of the AAP. And then the other thing that we do is we have workshops periodically, and they're listed online. Melissa and I just finished a workshop on intergenerational continuity and talked about how the mother was unresolved and how that created a failed mourning situation for her teenage daughter and role reversal and other kinds of problems. And it has a really good ending. The daughter is doing great. Uh, Mom's back in therapy. We explain, you know, how the dynamic went at the intergenerational level. And actually, I have a video of that. So if anyone would like to see that, they should just let Well, you can send it to me, and I can put it in the show notes so that it's right there for folks if you would like to. Okay. Well, they have to subscribe for the video. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, then just in the show notes, we'll basically funnel folks. um, Yeah, funnel folks, and they can also contact me as well. And I would recommend, if you're a therapist considering this, to do your first AAI um, on you. Your first uh, AAP. AAP, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know, it's just me right, too. Right, right. So your first AAP on you, just for a million reasons, and it's going to then help you be able to interpret and assist your clients through yeah, this Yeah, that's well. a really good recommendation, I agree. Yeah. And yeah. that's how I started on this consultation. Mm-hmm. Because we all have things that we see and name, and some of them, there's always hope. 
<laughs> and I love ending on that, that that's exactly right. That that's, that's the point of all of this. This is why we're getting the word out is that we don't have to live with these unresolved and unacknowledged even pain. The idea is to make it coherent, to make it be talk aboutable and to use relationships to continue to heal and grow and develop our secure selves. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. I know you're going to get some contact. So again, this is Carol George and her latest book. We've been re referencing it a lot. Working with Attachment Trauma, Clinical Application of the AAP, of the Adult Attachment Projective. You can find the show notes at therapistuncensored.com backslash episodes. And it'll be right there on top. Or you just go to our website and put Carol George in. Both of them will come up. The other episode that we had mentioned that we've done before, if you're really into this and you want more right this moment, go to episode 162. That will be our first conversation that had in depth about the instrument. And again, like a lot of nuance and detail about the clinical application, which is really wonderful. And if you're going to do your own, do, do any of that yet. <laughs> do your AP fresh. And then explore. Yeah. Do your AAP fresh, but it's still true that even when you know, you I know, still I do know. it. I've noticed myself, like in looking at the pictures now, I still am like, this is obviously this thing that I'm seeing, which is not the best thing to see, you know? <laughs> so our brains don't change that much, but I agree. But I, it would be really nice to just go and do a cold. clean one. Do but if you one. don't, if you're so curious, you have to look, that's fine too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure and such a privilege and such an honor. And for those of you still listening, that means uh, hopefully this uh, episode has brought you value. We encourage you to share it. And the best thing that you can do for us is to give us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. That helps other people find this incredible archive of hopeful information around attachment and relational neuroscience. Okay, thanks for listening. We'll see you around the bend. Best Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.